Okay. Last week, um, we were still looking at, we did the study on Samson, then last week we compared Samson and Joshua and looked a bit at Joshua. And then remember I said to you that the teachings seemed to hit a bit of a, a low point or a heavy point. And I told you all that this is in preparation, we're going to do overcoming. And um, <clears throat> obviously overcoming, we find in the seven letters in Revelation. So, let's go to the letter that we are doing first. And uh, ironically, it's the last letter that we're starting with. So this is in Revelation chapter 3, from verse 14. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> Very edifying. From here can only go up. <laughs> so, I'm assuming that all of us are now so positioned with the Lord that this does, doesn't scare us anymore. Now, can we immediately identify that if this doesn't have an effect on us, where it awakens the fear of the Lord in us, then there would be something very wrong. We are secure in our salvation. We know that we are in Him. But that doesn't mean that we have moved away from the fear of the Lord. Now we know that we will not be vomited out. But we want to pause and have a look at what this looks like. Why are we reading the last letter first? Just touch on it and then we're going to, we're going to go back to Joshua as well today. Okay. Um, so we'll, we'll, we're going to explain it more in depth a bit later again. 
But we're starting with the last letter first because of what he says basically in the last verse. Uh, in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And we know in Ephesians chapter 2, we read it often, it says that uh, he made us alive together with Messiah, and that we were seated with him in the heavenly places in Messiah, Yahushua. And so this, to whom whoever comes will grant to sit with me on my throne, we know, so even though it's the last letter in overcoming, we're going to look at how this works, we know that because of this, it's actually um, pointing to the, be the very beginning of the process, if you want to call it the process, because we cannot enter into the things of God if we have not been resurrected with him and in him and seated with him on his throne in heavenly places in okay okay so we're going to come back to this and it's going to reveal again the basic structure of everything that is written and then um so we are going to have a look at how again the way that the letters are written it fits into the way that the entire scriptures have been written mm -hmm. the way that creation works and the revelation of God himself in Revelation. So the last letter is the first step. Yet, we have established uh, over time that the seven letters in Revelation is seven steps of overcoming. So actually, we have six steps of overcoming and we have the last letter as the fullness and we'll get back to that just now. That's why we're going to start here. We remember that everything in Scripture can be read from the back to the front and then from the back to the, from the front to the back again. Okay. Now, because of this reality, we're also going to now connect what we're doing in Revelation with its counterpart in Scripture. And that is in the book of Joshua. Before we go all the way there, um, when we read this letter, the obvious thing that stands out, which I'm, which I'm sure you all picked up on and, and have picked up on in the past, is the lukewarmness. Mm. The topic of cold or hot, no, but you're lukewarm. Anybody, is there anybody where, who experienced that this wasn't the thing that jumps out first? What's the main emphasis for everybody when you read it? Did you focus on other things than lukewarm, cold not? Let's see, I want to see what happens to everybody. Was it true for everybody? Now, I don't know about you guys, in the beginning of my walk, if I read this, I got cold shivers. Hot flashes. Cold sweat. So, yeah, okay. Okay, so the lukewarmness obviously jumps out at us. Uh, again, we are going to circle back continuously to this letter. But what is made very um, clear with this whole lukewarmness and cold and hot concept is the fact that the Lord deals with us in ultimatums. 
Now, generally speaking, human beings don't really like ultimatums. We like the idea of making a choice that we made without pressure and we feel good about the decision we made and uh, don't like being forced into making a decision, especially not when the decision is between two extremes. And this is something very interesting when it comes to God and our walk with God, because God will continuously put us in situations where we need to, where we are facing extreme ultimatums. So not even kind of average mediocre ultimatums, it's always extreme, life or death, blessing or curse, in or out. Okay. And so... Um, Heaven or hell. There we go. <laughs> Salvation or condemnation. Okay, we get the idea. So it's always extreme ultimatums. And obviously this causes all kind of discomfort, but we are going to, to look more at that. Now, we started out by saying that we are all sure that all of us sitting here are secure in our salvation. So, generally speaking, we know that we have all gone through that decision-making process, facing the ultimatum of laying down our lives and being resurrected. And so we know in that context, we don't believe that anyone here is still lukewarm to be able to be spat out of his mouth. So generally speaking, we know that that's true for our lives. But now, and this is where we're going to look at these letters and how they fit together. Now, we need to start looking at the different aspects of our lives and discern which areas of our lives are still lukewarm. In which areas have we not faced the ultimate extreme or, and made the ultimate and extreme decision? Because in those areas of our lives where we are still lukewarm, we definitely walk the risk of the Lord rejecting those areas. Has anybody seen, I don't know if you've got Facebook, at some stage there's going to be a video of some guy on a skateboard making the decision to jump into the air, land on the railing of a staircase and try and ride that out. How do you make that decision? <laughs> See, my head goes, never. Not ever doing that. Everybody see that? Mm -hmm. Never doing that. So, if I look around the room, how did we become extremists? See, I could understand there's a crowd of people out there that would go do stuff like that. Right? So I don't think I'm the type of person that's going to go wheelie a motorcycle down the road. <laughs> My head's going to go risk analysis. This motorcycle cost X, Y, and Z. Also, my life is rather valuable. <laughs> I'm the guy that's going to actually add some training wheels to the motorcycle and just keep the it. The day I get on the motorcycle, I will surely die. <laughs> and yet, some, somehow, I mean, Nora, have you been an extreme risk taker all your life? Not really. Not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> I look around the room and I think it's evident that um, this has to be the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I mean, I look at Honey. <laughs> <laughs> I go, how did she become an extremist? <laughs> you would be a little drunk you. 
I mean, Shilani is kind of adventurous, but I don't think she's that kind of extremist either. Um, yeah, I don't know if she's kind of... I don't know. She might wheelie down the road on the motorcycle. She did once try to catch a snake. No, she did. <laughs> no, I definitely did not. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, she went with a net like. Okay, so... Okay, so so we we're gonna talk we're gonna talk extreme measures, and that's why we measures in the next level. <laughs> when it comes to the overcoming in the letters of uh, the churches, we are seeing ourselves as the church, not because we are better than the others. We're just going to have a viewpoint of we are the church. Okay. We are going to look at everything that we are and do and believe and we're going to go like, if anybody's going to represent the truth of God, the word of God, then it's going to be us. Okay, so now, when it comes to a study of the overcoming in the seven letters, it's going to push us to a whole new level of being extreme. And we are already somewhat extreme, aren't we? So, Full disclosure, this is why two years ago when I wanted to go further on the teachings on uh, overcoming, we didn't. And a year ago, we didn't. Because this really is next level stuff. We want to know how to overcome. And we have all been overcoming. So we've been doing these things anyway. But now we're talking next level. And we're going to look at this letter where it would look from the surface as if we have fulfilled the requirements. We got baptized. We all, every person that had a true baptism knows that it was an extreme battle. It was a struggle against the flesh and it was a laying down of the flesh. Um, it, was, it was quite an intense process for all of us. Mm. And then we got through it. And we then went through the whole process of separation. Mm. We had to choose between us and our family, the Lord and our family, the kingdom of God and our home life. We had to choose between all those things. Friends, careers, all kinds of decisions had to be made. Separation. Mm. And so we could look at this and go, well, we're not lukewarm. But we're going to look at it with new eyes. And now... I'm just witnessing to what you said. We are going to apply this to the motivations of our hearts, to parts of our life that we could still go and say, Lord, shine your light on everything because we are going to push into the next level of going deep with God. And keep in mind, it is the year of godliness, so... Really, there's no better time to do it. Mm. And that's why we're going to go back to Joshua and the Israelites. Because there's an event in the Bible that will help us understand how we negotiate, how we, not negotiate, um, negotiate like you have to go into the rapids, figure out how you 
are going to approach this process of looking at different areas of our hearts, our mindsets, and our lives. Shall we go there? No. Okay. Well, we're going to read Joshua. Okay. Joshua chapter 3. Okay, now, we didn't read the part in chapter 1 where they are going to, so they need to sanctify themselves for three days before they can pass over the Jordan. We're not going to read that part. We're just going to pick it up at Joshua chapter 3. So we're looking at Israel crossing over the Jordan. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Akasha Grove and came to the Jordan. He and all the children of Israel and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was, after three days, that the officers went through the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua spoke to the priest, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you shall stand in the Jordan. So Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe, and it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, the waters that come down from upstream and they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as those who bore the Ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priests who bore the Ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still, and rose in a heap, very far away at Adam, the city which is beside Zaretan. So the waters that went down into the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, 
and all Israel crossed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. So we have not only an event where they have to cross into the promised land. It seems to be the, the big focal point that they have to get through the river to get into the promised land. But we are going to zoom in on the actual glory of this event. So what's the status of those people as they have just come out of their wanderings in the wilderness? What's significant about them? So we know that once they cross over the Jordan, there's the circumcision of all the names. <clears throat> and this is quite significant, an event the circumcision event is, is very big and very significant. But what one might miss is the fact that this entire generation, while they're still on the other side of the Jordan, are still uncircumcised, which means that they are, in fact, without covenant. So they are God's people. God has chosen Israel, but these people do not yet actually have covenant because they have not been circumcised. We know there's a priesthood because the sons of Aaron have been sanctified unto the Lord as priests. Joshua and Caleb have been circumcised. Joshua and Caleb, we know, represent covenant. So we have the priests, they have been anointed and separated as a priesthood. They are the Levites. Out of the other people, we have Joshua and Caleb. They represent the covenantal people. There's two witnesses. But the rest of the people have no covenant. They've been walking under the cloud, eating the manna without covenant. And we want to always just comment on a modern context. A lot of people say, well, I was born in the church. I was raised in the church. A lot of people say, I've always been a believer. See, they are very much in the same state of being as the Israelites here. They might have been prepared for this time. They've been prepared and predestined maybe by the Lord for 
a time of separate, separation unto him. Now God says before they are going to cross over the river, He now commands them, sanctify yourselves, separate yourselves, for the Lord is going to do a wondrous thing, a significant thing, a big thing among you. Can you comment on that? Mm. Okay, so this is in verse 5. It says, And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Now, that word among, among you, uh, obviously with the event that's going to take place, it seems it's already significant because the Lord is going to do a miracle in front of their eyes. They're going to move into the promised land. But this word among, actually when you go look at its original meaning and root word, it simply means um, within. So it's the same word that's used when the scripture says that uh, when Rebecca was still pregnant with Jacob and Esau, that the twins um, already wrestled within a womb, that same word within, that's the same word as this word among. So what he's actually saying is sanctify yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders within you. Now this could be in their midst, or this could simply mean within each one of them. So on the outside it looks like they're just going to cross through a river into another area of land. So this is a hugely significant piece of scripture. It's a hugely significant event. And it's revealed in these small nuances of the word. So he's telling them start to separate yourselves. So what would that separation action be? For them in preparation of the Lord, uh, they're awaiting, they're expectantly waiting because the Lord is going to do a wondrous thing on the inside of them, among them, in their bowels. That's what it basically means. How would they separate themselves here? What would they do? Would they just watch themselves? Okay, so from the time the leaders go through the camp and they say, start preparing yourselves because tomorrow or when we pass through the river, you've got to be ready. If your neighbor came and had a little chat with you at your tent door, I would get my sword and cut his head off in this particular time frame. So what would the separation look like? The sanctification. This process, what would be happening in their thoughts, their hearts? They're going to cross over. Are their thoughts going to revolve around the dangers that's on the other side? Now we know what happened to their fathers. They were focused on the dangers. Uh, I think they would have learned the lesson not to be there. What would this process be in their minds? What would their minds be doing, their thoughts be doing, their hearts be doing? I suspect there's kind of a quiet, a hush that's settling upon the camp at this moment. 
in time. In this process of overcoming, we're going to start to look at the fear of the Lord. Something that's taking form, it's not fully formed yet, but we are going to start to look more and more at the fear of the Lord. Now, I want us to now already start to again allow ourselves with our whole being to use this moment where the Israelites are at this moment. The tents are still standing, they're kind of getting ready to move. Packing some extra things away. What's the, what's happening? What's the atmosphere like? What's happening in their hearts and their minds? I think um, the entire camp would be ministering in just the atmosphere that's there to each other. person without the fear of the Lord would be noticeable at this moment in time. But now the next step is the Lord says when you see the Ark of the Covenant. The average Israelite might never have seen the Ark of the Covenant. I'd never have laid eyes on them, on it, all their lives. Yes, they pack up the tabernacle. But if you're part of the majority that's kind of in the back, you would have never gotten to see it. The Ark of the Covenant is carried by a select group of people, especially sanctified wasps purified for that reason. And now, after a lifetime of things being the way that it was, the manna is on the ground every morning, the cloud is overhead, they've lived in the shadow of God, they've been warmed by His presence at night, the news the news of the day is that when you see the Ark of the Covenant it's the high priest that gets to see you the Ark of the Covenant, and that is at the risk of his very life. Are you telling me the presence of God is going to be brought out? Read that piece of scripture again. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, 
and the priests, the Levites, bearing it. And you shall set out from your place and go after it. Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Now, wait a second. A fully flooded river, <coughs> the water is going to stop in its tracks from flowing. There's going to be a wall. The rest of the water is going to continue flowing. It's going to be an entire dry riverbed. Isn't that the obvious way to go? Yet it says that the Ark of the Covenant, the priests bringing out the Ark of the Covenant, that is so that you may know the way. Because you have not passed this way before. See the embedded mm -hmm. messages of truth that's here. It's scary enough to know that the, they are going to bring the Ark of the Covenant among the people. So the tents are packed, they're ready, ready to move. The priests come out carrying the Ark of the Covenant. So the priests move into the Jordan and the river stops flowing. And when they moved in the past, they always moved in order. So like you said, some might have had a glimpse of the ark, those who were moving in front, but now the Ark is going to be stationary. The Ark of the Covenant and the Levites that carry it are going to keep the river open. And all of Israel needs to pass by. So usually it would only have been the high priest that would ever lay his eyes on the Ark of the Covenant and that he did once a year. And then those priests that were set apart to carry it. But now the ark is entirely exposed. And all of Israel has the opportunity to see it. Now this might sound very exciting at first. Oh, we're going to pass through and we're going to see the ark of the covenant. But it's this very ark of the covenant. that bears the presence of God in such glory and might that the high priest himself, when entering its presence, enters with the risk of his life. He might not survive this encounter. And all of Israel, they're not Levites, 
They're not set apart to be allowed into the presence of the ark of the Lord, but they need to pass by. And yes, it is at a distance, but the fact of the matter is, there is the ark, out in the open, bearing the presence and the glory of God. And there's no other way through the river. There's no other way of getting into the promised land. You have to go the way and you have to pass by the ark. So yes, at first it might sound very exciting, going to see something that we've never seen before. But imagine moving, the Israelites starting to move through and you're part of the group that's kind of at the back. So at first, the weight of it might not really hit you. But as you get closer to crossing the river, you realize the Ark of the Covenant is in the middle. And you are now very close to passing by. Do you dare glance? Do you look at it? Are you allowed to? What will happen if you do? You just look in front of you, focused on where you're supposed to go. Do you have a moment to stop in awe and wonder? What would happen to the Israelite who decides this is his one chance to be in the presence of the Ark of God and he's going to now kneel and worship? What about the person who decides during the passing over to tell his neighbor how, what an amazing experience this is? What is the attitude of the heart? What is happening within the Israelites as they move across this riverbank? Yes, they're moving into the promises of God, but they have to move past the, the Ark of the Covenant, which not only bears the presence of God, but also bears the revelation of God. There's so much that could occupy the Israelites' attention. There's a wall of water. It's a great sight. The priests are dressed in their full priestly garment. That must be a sight to see. You have this great crowd of people walking through a dry riverbed. Could be wondering what the land is going to be, this land of flowing with milk and honey. What do you think would be occupying the average Israelites' attention and thoughts right now? Is it that little box over there? See, above the Ark of the Covenant is the glory of cloud, the glory of God. And this is where we want to we want to pull everybody's attention to this one fact. That for the next season of our lives and our walk with God, we are going to encourage everybody to establish a greater mindset of the awareness of that covenant. What that covenant is in our lives, what it represents in our lives. 
I've been in the heavenly realm many times. I've been there forever and I've never seen the Ark of the Covenant. I most certainly have wanted to see. We know it's there, but it has to be revealed in its time. We know that the Lord is the Covenant. We know the body is the Ark of the Covenant. We know that. But the time has come for us to develop a greater mindset, greater focus. On this amazing aspect of God Himself and of His Word, so what is being positioned in the middle of this place of the separated water. Those are cherubim. I wouldn't dare draw them. It's just their wings covering them. And they're looking down over that. So the foundation is that God knows who is His. This is the foundation upon which creation starts. So this box has a solid bottom. Things would be within and it would rest upon. What's resting upon? First God created Adam and Eve, man in his image and his likeness. Because when the box is first made, it's empty. Then man transgresses and the law is added. The authority of the priesthood, the staff, Aaron, is added. Now that the law and the authority of the priesthood is added, the salvation plan, the Lamb, the blood of the Lamb is sprinkled in between those that would administer the will of God upon the earth. So they are looking through the blood at the law. 
And the glory of God above all of this is the, the glory finished work of God. The glory of God is the finished glory of God, the glory cloud. And what you have in the Ark of the Covenant is the finished work of God. The finished work from the foundations to the finished work that is Messiah, the new Jerusalem, the city that becomes our faith, the crucifixion and resurrection in the middle of time. See the law not cancelled out, but contained within the covenant. The covenant finished and sealed by the blood that leads to the glory. And all things in heaven and earth being made one together in Messiah. So what is represented by the Ark of the Covenant at that moment when the waters are separated from each other, the waters beneath and the waters above, is the absolute finished work of God, the perfect will of God. And every Israelite are going to have an opportunity to walk past. We understand this as presenting ourselves in the sight of God. They might just be walking, you might decide to look at the floor, to look straight ahead of you. I don't know what's worse, being first or last in line. But you're going to have a turn and you're going to pass by the finished work of all things. The completeness of God and His plan. This is outside of time. This is everything in one go. How much they understood, we don't know. We just know that for an Israelite, this moment would have been beyond understanding. Beyond understanding. The Ark of the Covenant in the middle of all things are going to almost render the separating of the water insignificant. And see as they pass through, the Lord is going to do a wondrous, miraculous thing in their bowels on the inside. So we know this represents the full wonder of baptism. This is the essence of what baptism is. And it's because they pass through this process that on the other side the men are now circumcised. We know the circumcision of the heart happens in Messiah. What does this have to do with the last letter? In the book of Revelation. See, this is this is as extreme as you can get. And we want to start identifying our process of overcoming 
And we're going to approach our process of overcoming from this perspective. You woke up on this side of the riverbank. The Lord is not asking if you're ready. Because when He asked their fathers to go pass through, they weren't ready. And there was no second chances for them. When uh, through this process, and we've been in the process of overcoming, but I said we're taking it to a slightly deeper level. We've got to understand that when overcoming comes, we have to guard against the mindset that um, I'll do it next time. I'll deal with this next time. I'll overcome a little bit. I'm going to just kind of put my feet in the water, get used to the feeling, maybe go in halfway, then go back. We'll just kind of get used to the idea. Lord says pass through, go like, can I just kind of think about it? Maybe I'm not ready. I'm going to read a few scriptures. Let me pray about it. Pray about it. Lord, I hear you saying pass through into the promised land, but I'm going to pray about it a little bit. Now, we don't, no longer have this problem in this group. But we, for many of us in the beginning, when we started walking this, we had that mindset. I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to think about it a little bit. I see what the word is saying, but it's going to, what were we going to pray about? Yeah. You know how many people, when we speak to them about baptism, told me I'm going to pray about it? What do you want to pray about? Ask the Lord to confirm it. How is that prayer going to go? What exactly are you going to say to the Lord? And people still say that out there, often. They're like, yeah, I'm in the process of seeking the Lord for this. I can tell you what your outcome is going to be. The water is going to close. And then if you pass through, you're going to have to swim for your life. Okay, so when it comes to overcoming, we want to understand that we've been through this separation process. We know the process. But with our experience, our excuses is evaporating very quickly. And... We are on time. This teaching is for this day, for this date. That's why we've been waiting, waiting, searching, looking. And we're going to have a whole new understanding of, of lukewarm, of the last letter. Because now, when we are faced with the overcoming, we have to have a new mindset. And then in maybe a year or two or three, we're going to come to a place where we realize that the way we overcame in 2021 was still not it. But at least we were going to be in the right season, in the right place, doing what we were supposed to do. The Lord is going to lead us in what we can do for now. But He's not going to allow us to do things according to 2018's abilities.
Let me see. Okay. So please refer back to this absolute picture because we've been through the baptism waters. We know separation. Yet, when they lose the battle of I, they go, should we have stayed on the other side? How wonderful it is to come into the rest of God. Yay, now we can make war. What does the Bible say about the entering his rest? So we know that entering his rest is represented by this picture. And when most people read that verse, they go like, Oh, rest. Wonderful. I need rest. Yeah. I'm I can so do tired. Some relaxation, fine. <laughs> Just to lie back, put my feet up, find it. Tell us about it. So obviously when the Israelites enter the promised land, which equates to entering the rest as we're going to see now from Hebrews chapter 4, for them this means now finally they can start making war with those nations that are currently occupying Canaan. Okay. <coughs> And it's quite a beautiful picture, and we're going to read the scripture now about the details, but it's quite beautiful in the sense that before, before they pass through the river Jordan and into the promised land and are circumcised, the Israelites are, they'll fight, but they're quite um, meek. And seemingly a little bit scared and unsure. But then once they pass through the promised land, there's this change of hearts, this change of attitude, because now they all march to war with a sense of God is going to fight for them, and so there's no way they're going to lose. And they enter the promised land with a somewhat of a boldness. And I think this is beautifully reflected when we look at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, where we have the 120 disciples sitting in an upper room, unsure, knowing who God is, knowing the ways of God, but unsure, somewhat scared. And then it happens. And all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we see Peter marching out onto the roof, no longer fearful. No longer unsure, but very bold in doing what he knows to do. And make no mistake, taking on a very, very, very big spiritual war. And so we see this, this foreshadowing, this reflection in the story of the Israelites entering the promised land and what happens to the disciples. But um, very important, we see that when we read Hebrews chapter 4, it says from verse 6 now we know that God says entering the promised land was he equates that to entering his rest 
However, it says from verse 6 that since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying, Endeavor today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. So even though the Israelites do enter the promised land, we do know that God works a wondrous thing among them and within them, the rest still remains. It says that if Joshua had given them rest. What does this mean? Why is this written in this way? See, all of the Israelites passed by, and yes, they are in the system, the God-given legal system of the Mosaic Covenant. But before God brings them to confirming the Mosaic Covenant, He does exactly what He did in the big picture. It says that the covenant that He cut with Abraham was not cancelled or altered or changed by the covenant made with the Israelites or Moses at Mount Sinai. So before he brings them to the circumcision covenant, he makes them pass by the Ark of the Covenant. And that's his fulfilled covenant. It's the ultimate fulfilled covenant. It's not our covenant. It's like always hard to circumvent the mindset that we have of new covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the covenant. It's his everlasting covenant. And he gives them opportunity to pass by, but they have to pass by at a distance. Is it because the time had not yet come? What would happen to the Israelites who looked at the Ark of the Covenant, saw the presence of God and understood? the way that Abel understood. We could say the time had not yet come, but Abel had come into the covenant. So did King David. So did Enoch. So did Noah. And it says in the book of Hebrews that they did not come into the rest of God. Therefore, if there remains a day, we are seeing in the Christian world churches full of people passing by at a distance. Mm -hmm. And yet not understanding. Not understanding. They see in the Bible, Yahushua HaMashiach on earth, they understand, they see his crucifixion. They even see there's a resurrection but missing out on the finished work of God. Now to what degree do we have to understand the finished work of God to enter into the rest? This is the unknown factor. We, all, we only know that we cannot fall short of it. So they passed through into the promised land. 
they were brought into the circumcision covenant, but after he presented to them the finished work. And it says that it didn't enter into his rest. But we are encouraged by what is written in the book of Hebrews for us to carry, to come into that rest, to enter into that rest, that fullness. Now, we understand from the story that them entering into the promises of God entails that they will now have to fight battles. They will have to conquer cities. They will have to come against other nations with their idols and that they will continue to make decisions. They will have to overcome. And this is the truth for our walk. We come through the baptism and we go, I finally have entered into the rest. We are seated in heavenly places in Messiah. But on earth, the process of overcoming has started. And that is why the seventh letter is the overcoming letter. Do you want to show us how it forms to constants? Now we know that everything in the Bible works circularly, not linearly. Okay. <coughs> now, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father and his throne. So even though it's the seventh letter, we understand that it's the first step. Because in the moments of laying down our lives and being resurrected with him, we are seated with him in heavenly places in Messiah. So this must be the first step. This is the overcoming of laying down our lives and being separated from death into life, the ultimate separation. Okay. But now, he says, so to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. But then he says, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So we are seated with him in heavenly places. But now he says, but he himself overcame and sat down on his throne. So what did he overcome? How did he overcome? And this is where we find the first six letters. So, 
So, he overcame and sat down with his father on his throne. Now, when it says he overcame, obviously he overcame everything. So he would have gone step one, step two, step three, all the way to step seven, having gone through the ultimate overcoming, seated with his father on his throne. Now, we come to the Lord. And in the first, and the first step in overcoming is to just lay down our lives and be baptized into him. So seated with him as he is seated. Now this is obviously step seven, but it's also, it's letter seven, but it's also step one. So it is the last step, but it's also the first step. Remember, everything works circularly. Let me explain it. So if he overcame all the steps of overcoming, because we know that he did in his obedience, he fulfilled the will of the Father. So he overcame everything. And we are baptized into him. And that means that as we, the moment we are seated with him in heavenly places, we inherit every step of overcoming that he walked out. Everything that he overcame, we inherit. So without having overcome anything, without having gone through the first six, six steps at all, the moment we are seated with him, we inherit every step of overcoming. So it's as if we did, because we are in him. He did everything. And so now, because we are in him, it's like we did everything. Does that make any sense? So he did everything, but we are in him. So it's like we did everything. But this is only the first step, but it's the last letter. So it is the first step, and it's also the last step. Because now... From here, from this position, we are now able to move through the six steps, all the way back to the seventh step. And this is a wonderful picture of entering the rest. Because now, from a position of knowing that we have overcome and been seated with him on his throne, and him having overcome everything. Now, if I move to step one and try to overcome step one, it's really, I'm going to have to do it. And it's not that I just don't make an effort and that I'm not diligent and that I don't have faith. I do all those things and I do what's necessary to be done. I walk by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. I am diligent. But I know that the outcome is sure because I've already been seated with him and he already overcame. And so now I move through the, stick, the six steps until I get to the seventh step. But the seventh step was my starting point. There was no way for me to overcome step one if step seven wasn't in place. And so again, we have this circular movement. He is the beginning and the end. And so really there's no beginning or end, but the beginning is the end and the end is the beginning. And so there is this point where things merge but it's neither the beginning nor the end and yet it's both does that make sense well done that's so how does this help us in the process no matter where you are at in overcoming no matter what part of overcoming you're dealing with you can always refer back to step number seven at any stage through the process of overcoming, 
you can always at any moment refer back to step number seven because that's the step that has been completed. Have you ever felt that you are failing when it comes to the overcoming of doubt and unbelief? Now in the middle of feeling that I'm not making it, uh, doubt is overcoming me, you can refer back to step seven. Because if you have been resurrected, then step seven is a pass for you. Remember I taught you, you can always refer back to your baptism. The one constant that we can always go back to. If your baptism has been a true baptism, then you can always refer back to it. A person that hasn't had a baptism that was successful, try and refer back to it, they're always going to feel unsure and unsettled. So, we're going to redraw this. So, seven, what is happening with this? Seven. At the top. Ooh, that's wonderful. Then, step one, yeah, it forms two constants. Right. It's always working in a non-stop circular fashion towards each other, no matter where you are at in the steps. There's two constants. For those who overcome doubt and unbelief, first step, you will give of the fruit of the tree of life to eat, that is in the midst of the garden. Remember we always refer back to that as well, that's why we're in the garden ministries. We believe that we were resurrected back into His image and His likeness, into the perfect state, and we have been granted the separation, that which separated humanity from the kingdom of heaven has been removed. So this remains a constant step for us. That remains a constant step because if you've been resurrected, then you are seated in heavenly places in Messiah with Messiah. That remains constant. So, no matter where you're at, these two are constants. Right. He created everything in creation according to these things. Beginning and end, North Pole, South Pole, take one of them away, we're going to wobble. Okay, <laughs> so, these are constant. So, we can always refer back. We are putting a structure in place so that we can start to understand now you can't teach this because you, then you're going to try and follow a formula. You can't teach this in the beginning. We've allowed you to walk a certain road out um, without the structure. And you have learned how, what it looks like to sometimes make it, sometimes not make it, but somehow ultimately we made it. Okay, so sometimes we didn't overcome doubt and unbelief and then we forgot and the next day we continued with things. So when you didn't overcome doubt and unbelief, it for somehow didn't really ruin everything. There was a few, however, that didn't make it in the process. But he can bring them back because of that one constant number seven. 
how does this all work backward? Why can he lead them through the dried Jordan into the promised land according to the centrality of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant? Why can he do that? Because see, outside of time, the land that he's leading them into is where his throne is established for a thousand years. Right? See, nothing in the Lord's will is not accomplished. That's the difference between what we believe and the rest of the world. The rest of the world somehow thinks he's still trying to do things. One guy on Facebook wrote that Messiah came, Yahushua came to earth and he offered the Jews the kingdom. And if they accepted it, he would have established the kingdom right then and then. But because they rejected it, they crucified him and therefore he's got to come back and do it again. It's like, what? <laughs> Shut up your face. Anyway, so, <laughs> so he's saying the Lord came, tried something, failed, and then, see, we've got to understand that the tried one thing that we, failed. that's what he's saying. And that's a lot in a lot of the mindset of the world out there. We've got to have that number seven in place. That's entering the rest. Rest doesn't mean to relax. Mm. Entering the rest means he has already accomplished what he set out to do. He's finished it. So he promises Abraham that he is giving them the promised land. He continuously speaks to them that I have given your descendants this land. They're not even in it at times. And he's talking to them as if he has given it to them. He has given them victory. Why? Because all things in the Lord are according to His finished work, which means that He's giving them the promised land according to His reign in the promised land for a thousand years. This is very important, a concept that we establish in our mindset so that we can overcome. For us, we are coming into the overcoming according to what has been finished. He's the finished. So we know that He becomes our example. He's the finished work. He's the person, His character, His heart, His person. So that's because that has been finished. Okay, now let's go very briefly to the actual letter and the hot or cold and lukewarm thing. Now, if the water in the kettle is very hot, but it's not yet making bubbles, we don't consider it usually lukewarm, do we? Because it's, it's hot. It's still a little lukewarm. <laughs> now, this is where we're going to establish what we're talking about here. The water is either boiling or not. See, this is where full measures comes in. If you're 99% righteous, are you righteous or unrighteous? So now I dare you, tomorrow morning, don't allow the kettle to actually boil. Just switch it off, off before, the, when you see the first bubble, switch it off and make your coffee with it. It's hot. What's the problem? Why do we doubt that it will still taste good? 
when you take a bath or a shower tonight I know don't make it hot just like lukewarm just like you know it's just, it's not like cold cold so that it's completely uncomfortable but just like awful. no I think we should just as a way to practice overcoming never ever shower in lukewarm water again choose cold or hot no. Okay, so we get. <laughs> so we get the picture. Hot is boiling hot. As far as cold is concerned, anything beneath 20 degrees is ice cold, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, so. Okay, so we get. The, we're talking about extremes. The Lord in this letter comes with extremes. He's not playing around. And he's coming with an ultimatum. That's why this letter cannot possibly be in the last, the last letter in the sequence of seven steps of overcoming. Because if you overcame all through the other letters and come to this letter and you still... Can you finally just choose, hot or cold? See how... Okay, so do we see, this is an ultimatum of extremes. You're either hot or you're you cold. That's what he says. I wish that you would, would just be cold or hot. But lukewarm, it's not what I want. And it is interesting because he doesn't say, I wish you were hot. He says, I just wish you could make a decision. Just choose. Which one are you? And this is also why this letter is right in the beginning. Because see, you don't get anywhere with the Lord without making that basic decision. So all the lukewarm crowd out there, let's just call a spade a spade. If you don't boil water, you're not going to see it evaporate. Lukewarm stays right where it is on earth. Okay, now we're going to get to our application. Let's just understand contextually. Lukewarm is lukewarm. A person that can't make a decision about baptism, there's no doubt about his salvation status. That's where we're at. We're not even going to question that. We can bring a lot of scriptures into it. That's it. That's it. Lukewarm, vomited out of his mouth. he says either hot or cold now that vomited out the word mouth there is also the, the same word for sword keeps crossing over the tip of a sword so it's basically saying my, my word will sort you out right now we're going to go and look at the other aspects of this. Now these are aspects that we want to understand. There's certain aspects of our walk that we want to make sure we have in place. So he says, you think you're rich. Think you're fine. Now this is where we, start, we can start to apply, still apply this letter. Although the step is fulfilled for us. We can still use this letter. We can't ignore it. We can't take it and say we never have to read it again. We can now go and say, okay, so 
in the areas where we don't understand our need, we don't understand how much we need Him, there's still going to be a growth process in these areas. It says, buy from me gold refined in fire. Now, where do we connect this with the rest of the scriptures? Is this permission for us to love gold? Only purified gold. What do you buy this gold with? It's like, what currency? I don't think rand is going to work at all. Maybe dollars. How do you buy this gold? So where do we connect this with? Remember the parable of the talents? Mm. So, he says in Matthew chapter 25 For the kingdom of heaven is like a man, this is from verse 14, traveling to a far country, called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one to each according to his own ability. Okay, so talents is not the ability. The talents that he's talking about here is the, the coins, the gold coins that were used. So he gives them coins, but it's, he gives them of what is his. So we understand these coins represent things like faith itself, knowledge, understanding, wisdom, power, might, uh, that which we receive through His counsel, His attributes, that which belongs to Him, He gives to us. And then we have to use it. We have to use it. Okay. So we buy from Him gold refined in fire. We have to keep this one aspect in mind because we want to make sure that we are still continuously buying from Him gold refined in fire, and that which we have bought in the past, we are trading with in order to multiply it. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Then what's the next thing? And white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now we know this cannot be a process. We've been washed, forgiven, but but now there's the picture that we can we have to refer it back to scripture. We know that he covers them in the skin of the animal to point them towards the sacrifice and now they have to relate to it, they have to respond to it all the time. So we have white garments, but here we now have to be in a process and a mindset of referring back to that gift, the value of it, the consequence of it, and the weight of it all the time in our lives. So we don't try and cover our nakedness with other things. This is the aspect of the world where they keep repenting or keep wanting to do works or... Pardon? Is it also All the those things. Of those who go back to the cross continuously, yeah. wanting to be washed again. So, so we understand that now we just maintain that mm. position, that stature. Mm. 
Okay, the next one. The next one. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Okay, now this is where we want to tarry. We want to quickly pay attention to this because for the next month, we are going to make sure that we don't move on from the year of vision too quickly. Remember the year of perseverance? Mm -hmm. It's also the year of 2020 vision. Now, it's time for us to pay attention over the next month and make sure what was the development of vision in us. How did we develop? Did it develop? What did we see? When we did see, what was it like? What did it mean? What changed over the last year in us? What did the Lord do? What did He show us? What happened? Are you looking at things highly differently than you used to? different. For all of us, there's been significant changes in the way we see things. Now here, we want to not move on too quickly from this point. By the eyes soul, seek for more vision, seek to understand and to see better regarding the eternal things. There's a very narrow road that we have to travel upon and we have to see where we're going. Otherwise, we won't go there. All of us have done well. We have walked. But I am personally seeking him for better vision right now. Does that make sense? Okay. So now he says, and the reward that is at the end of this letter... And we have qualified by going through the baptism water. That process of preparing for baptism took us from kind of being lukewarm. We didn't know we were lukewarm. It took us to a boiling point. Remember, if you didn't reach a boiling point, you didn't make it through baptism. Which is the way it worked. A person uh, sitting here may have got to some kind of boiling point. It might have manifested in different ways, but it would have... And now, he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So these two lead on. This is where he goes from what he says to, this, to the churches unto this. One. So you see, this is what we have also worked very carefully into our mindset. That we understand Messiah. Messiah represents one. One sat on the throne. Did he just say that you will sit with him on his throne as he sat down on his father's throne with his father? Now, what picture did the world have if they don't, because they don't like the one idea most of the times. So you have this big Santa Claus guy with a lot of people on his lap. 
That's why this is important to connect it here. He saw one mm -hmm. sitting on the throne. When he was raised up, he became one with his father, and uh, we are raised up, we become one with him. Make sense? Okay. And that brings us back to Ephesians. Read that. So this brings the cycle of the overcoming letters into its fullness. We're going to read that. And then... <coughs> Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read together from verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yahushua, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Messiah Yahushua. Now, chapter 2, verse 7. Okay, I'll read it again. Now, it? That in the ages to come, you might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Messiah. Now, read the whole thing again. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah, by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Messiah Yahushua, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in its kindness toward us in Messiah Yahushua. So our overcoming process is a small picture of this reality. So he did all of this, finished it, and then over the ages that would stretch out after that, he was going to show what his grace and the riches of his grace were. Now next week we can talk a little bit about that riches, the riches of his grace. And um, then we're going to look a little bit more at vision. Okay, so this is was just the start so that we have uh, reference points regarding the overcoming process. Um, so what is the, so if we go back to the first letter, we say the first overcoming step is overcoming doubt and unbelief. What is the thing to overcome in this letter then? Madness, but again. Exactly. So this is... Um, so we've been extreme. But have we been keeping the water at boiling point?
ironic. I came in to boil the kettle this morning and started boiling my dad said, switch it, switch off the kettle, it's already boiling. <laughs> it doesn't use normal music. So when I make <laughs> So when I make coffee I boil the kettle twice. I've seen you do it five times, don't even lie. I don't care if it uses a little bit more energy. Okay, so that's our that's our, our vision that we are going to start to establish. How are we going to learn to keep the water at boiling point until everything evaporates? The reason why we still have to contend with so much flesh because we keep cooling down the water and we end up with a little puddle. Make sense? What cools down your spiritual temperature when you go back into self? So we feel the Holy Spirit moving, feel Him working with us, and then we go, ooh, the Lord is working with me, and we connect with some part of whatever's in here, pain, regret, need. And before you know it, you've gone from spiritually boiling point where the Lord can meet with you to cool down straight away to a point where you're just meeting with yourself again. And you go like, but Lord, you brought me to this place. I was busy repenting. Now, why are you so quiet? Does it sound familiar? We can identify the dynamic. It happens. Go like the Lord moves and we connect and then the next moment what He does, we're assuming that He wants to talk about my thing. And that cools us down all the way. So we're going to learn how to keep that boiling point in the Spirit. Okay. gonna get hot in here. <laughs> yeah. When we were preparing, I was like, don't sing the song. Don't sing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Question. <laughs> Questions. Now, check with yourself quickly. Is there any part of your fleshly mind, it would just at this moment feel like you? You won't be able to identify it necessarily as fleshly. That's saying, I'm not sure if I want to boil the whole kettle yet. Do we understand it's... Don't heat up one area of your life and then keep <laughs> others at a nice room temperature. Mm. Obviously because you're one being. So some parts are cold, some parts are hot, some parts are kind of average. What you're going to end up with is... Average. 
Okay, if you take a nice pork chop and you put it out in the sun, it gets hot. Is it going to get cooked? What's going to happen with it? It's going to rot. <laughs> so that's the problem with just not enough heat. So it's better to keep it in the fridge or in the oven. Okay, so I want us to carry these pictures. That's what lukewarm does. It ruins it. Right, questions, questions. <coughs> yes. The, the action of being lukewarm in some areas, does that create the double-mindedness? Exactly. Because what happens if you have boiling water and ice water? Also, lukewarmness can also equate to not actually making a decision. Mm -hmm. So putting off the deciding whether you're hot or cold. So mm -hmm. I'm just going to stay here in the middle, mm -hmm. which obviously double-mindedness. Mm -hmm. So you add cold water to boiling water, what happens? So that's the double-mindedness. Right, more questions. Any observations, any contributions? Yes. Can we, for instance, conclude that overcoming these refined precious metals and that that is um, through separation? Yes. So that when we look at, say, Proverbs 17, verse 3, the refining pot is for silver and gold, the furnace, or for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Yes. So that. Basically, Messiah likeness is then in verse 18 of Revelations, the refined gold. Yes. And not just the heat. Yes, because yeah. it only happens through extreme heat and separation. So, that's something that we are going to again look at is our mindset of asking the Lord to put us back into the fire all the time. It's normally at that point where you really feel it's too hot that you realize it's not hot enough. It's I'm feeling uncomfortable because I'm just close to the fire. In the fire is going to do the job. Okay, any more questions? Yes. contributing factors to what we are looking at and that's that things are getting more severe 
and that is that just because of the time frame within the plan that we are moving in as a generation, um, consequences for, our gener for us generally are more severe than it was for people in the 60s or in the 50s. I'm not saying that they, the consequences there were not already severe, mm. it's just that we are closer to the pla place where evil and darkness will increase, where deception is increasing and where all those things. So we are a generation where everything is severe as general. But then also because of the amount of revelation that the Lord has granted us, what has been, even if we have not fully understood it, what we have heard and acknowledged is going to make everything more severe as we move forward. We have already crossed over a threshold uh, where um, we are in grace, we, the Lord is providing for us, but severity is definitely going to be something that we have to be mindful of. Um, so, if you're not used to the manifested presence of God, for lengthy periods of time, then you won't really miss when it's not there. But a person that has a, become accustomed to more of the Lord, obviously will experience less of the Lord as very severe. So that would be mm -hmm. the, the way the severity works. Not because God has become more severe, it's because we have... Mm. Um, I think we've just moved a little bit deeper into things. Now, the, the way that consequences are going to be more severe, we are going to find out. This, we see in the Bible there's times when the Israelites get away with things, and then all of a sudden it becomes extremely severe for them. The Lord will warn, 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 but there's a, a certain cut-off point. <laughs> so I think... Um, there's, there's all kinds of factors that are going to uh, influence why things will be extremely severe. Mm -hmm. If a person had been... Uh, there's a few, few other things we've got to consider when it comes to the severity. If we had understood and confessed something and we had said that we had repented but we didn't, then the severity in our lives would be far more than for a person that are doing exactly the same thing, but hadn't actually... Yeah, had an intention of yeah. That's why it often looks like the unbelievers out there are prospering, because why would it be severe for them? Mm. They hadn't confessed it as sin, they hadn't even considered yes, it as exactly. sin yet. Yeah, they didn't confess that it as wrong. Will the goodness also be more? Oh, yes. Oh, good question. The, uh, so good when it comes to puns. Um, <laughs> and I did it three times. Uh, so the goodness is definitely increasing, that's for sure. Um, 
So, so we can we can definitely feel the elevated heat of His goodness as well. Mm. Uh, the level of fellowship that we are enjoying is unknown. <coughs> we don't have to do that much effort. It's just like people's birthdays roll around, we have a meal and it's great. As Molly said, but the level, the intimacy that I'm experiencing from where I'm sitting, I can't speak for you. As far as just fellowship with people, being comfortable, belonging, feeling, feeling comfortable. Are, are you guys experiencing feeling comfortable with yourselves? Just feeling accepted. We're all in the flesh, incomplete in certain areas. And we're not going to just accept it and make excuses for it, but there's a level of feeling comfortable mm -hmm. and accepted. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. so, so when you, we talk about the goodness increased, I think these are the subtle ways that we are experiencing the goodness increasing. Mm -hmm. His goodness in so many areas of our lives are increasing. Um, so yes, we should experience it. But then again, if we transgress the severity, the severity could be unexpected in, in its consequences. Um, I think if we actually looked at it and pondered it, we would find that the goodness has increased tremendously in so many areas. But it tends to be quite subtle. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm experiencing the, 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 the bad things in the world more intensely as well. Mm 